0: If you Google first successful kidney transplant, you'll probably find the heartwarming story of identical twins Richard and Ronald Herrick, whose brother-to-brother transplant was performed by Dr. Joseph Murray in Boston. But in fact, the first successful kidney transplant had already taken place four years earlier. I think when the
1: world first heard about this, it just seemed a bit improbable. There there was a burst of attention and publicity, but it it sort of faded away. And it it did get lost to history. And that was sort of my inspiration to kind of uh, resurface this.
0: That's Edmund Lawler, journalism professor at DePaul University and author of The Graft, How a Pioneering Operation Sparked the Modern Age of Organ Transplants which tells the little-known story of the world's first successful kidney transplant performed by Dr. Richard Lawler in 1950, right here in Illinois. I'm Sarah-Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. Thanks so much for joining us today, Edmund. Could you start by telling us what your relationship was like with Dr. Richard Lawler? You obviously have the same last name, so I'm sure our listeners are intrigued by that.
1: Yeah, that's correct, Sarah Jane. My uh, great uncle, uh, Richard Lawler, was my grandfather's older brother. They were a a family of physicians. Richard was the oldest of uh, four physicians in that same family. I really didn't know him. I... I'm told that I met him many times as a child, but uh, the memory didn't stick, which is uh, unfortunate. He sounded like a, a very interesting man and uh, accomplished quite a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What, what do you know of him? What was he like from what you've heard from your grandfather or other family members?
1: Yeah, my mother, 92 years old and um, alive and well in Chicago, Told me that uh, my uncle Richard was a very kind, very soft-spoken, you know, kind of a wry sense of humor. Had a, a certain determination about him. I, I've talked to other relatives, and and that seems to be the story that he was uh, fairly quiet, you know, a nice sense of humor, but was certainly not flamboyant. Was certainly not looking for publicity by doing this operation. That he was. Uh, a surgeon. He by this time he was fifty four years old, uh, so kind of at an age where he was, uh, you know, not looking to establish a name for himself in the field. He'd been a, a surgeon for probably about twenty five years by that point, or probably closer to about twenty years by that point. So uh, that's my impression of him, and that seems to be the consistent story I get across from all family members.
0: Okay, so since he was sort of a a quieter guy, maybe. Um not looking for publicity, like you said. Why do you think it was so important to him to perform this risky operation and be the first?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've been asked several times, what was the what was the, the moment when he decided to do this? And I've not been able to find that out. I know that he and his colleague, uh, Dr. James West, uh, a surgeon also at Little Company of Mary Hospital in Evergreen Park, They'd been talking about this for a number of years prior to actually doing the 1950 surgery. They had been doing some experiments on dogs, which actually have similar size veins and arteries to humans. And they'd been doing some uh, experiments at a couple of the other hospitals they'd been uh, working at. And um, they'd been kind of keeping track what was going on in the medical industry, in terms of the possibility of doing something like this, um, it was post World War II. There were a lot of uh, breakthroughs in terms of surgery as a result of the horror of World War II. So, battlefield medicine, I think, was uh, making something like this a possibility. So, I think it was kind of the combination of an outgrowth of World War II. Uh, this was 1950. It was an age of uh, a lot of medical technology breakthroughs. So I think they they just felt that the time was right. Uh, my uncle Richard, or Richard Lawler, I think was uh, hell bent on extending the lives of people with kidney illnesses.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it was kind of the right time, right guy kind of situation. So I know that other, uh, You mentioned in the book, other surgeons tried to perform transplants prior to uh, Dr. Lawler. What was unique about his surgery or his technique that, that ultimately made it successful?
1: Yeah, there had been some external transplants. So there was a, a, a Russian or actually Ukrainian surgeon named uh, Voronoi, who in the 1930s and 1940s had done some external kidney transplants it was uh, transplanted onto the upper thigh of the patient and the patient they didn't live very long because of the uh, rejection syndrome and there was actually a surgery in Boston at the uh, the famous brigham hospital uh, associated with harvard university in which a kidney was transplanted onto the kind of the elbow region in the late 1940s i'm not even sure if he was aware of these because uh, The uh, Ukrainian operations were published, but they were published in in Russian or the Ukrainian language. Uh, The external transplant operation that took place in Boston in, I think, 47 wasn't published. In fact, it was rather secretive. A little about it was said even at the, the hospital itself. So I don't know if that was uh, at all informative for Dr. Lawler and Dr. West. There was a third surgeon named Dr. Raymond Murphy. Um, so I, I think the genesis of it was just that they thought it could be done, that they thought that uh, with blood matching, which is something that, uh, that they did do in this surgery, uh, tissue-type matching, which is more sophisticated, that's to determine if there'll be some sort of clash between Uh, a patient's antibodies. That had not been developed. Uh, They had not developed immunosuppressive drugs that would uh, uh, eliminate or or at least diminish the organ rejection syndrome. That had not been developed. But they thought that if they had a blood-matched patient, uh, a patient of, say, the same gender, the same ethnicity, the same body size, and with uh, very strict critical care. That was one of the uh, one of the trends that developed after World War II. Was there was much better critical care, so they thought com- if you combine the the right surgical technique with extraordinary critical care, that the patient could survive.
0: That's so interesting. So Dr. Lawler's technique was instead of attaching the kidney externally, he actually placed the kidney in the patient's body.
1: Exactly. So it was, yeah, I think what what makes it unique was that it was the first intra-abdominal kidney transplant, which is, of course, the standard today. Uh, uh, You don't have, you know, outside of maybe some experiments taking place with uh, animal organs. Uh, That's the standard procedure, that you place it inside the body, you attach it to the appropriate vessels within the body. It's certainly better cosmetically and practically than uh, doing an external transplant. Right.
0: Walking around with a kidney on your elbow doesn't seem
1: practical. (laughs) That would be a bit weird.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So who were the recipient and the donor in this first surgery? Kind of walk us through all of the factors that led to this, this happening and being successful.
1: The recipient was a woman named Ruth Tucker. She was a 44-year-old Chicago woman who had been suffering from polycystic kidney disease, or PKD, which is a fairly common illness, of course. Um, she was a, a housewife, and I from what my research indicates that she was a phone operator for the Sears Roebuck store, believe the one, there was one downtown or in the loop in Chicago.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: But she had been suffering from kidney disease for a number of years and uh, her kidney was quite bloated from all the cysts had been developing. So she was in a great deal of pain. She had a, I think her general physician was a little company and The physician, Dr. Clancy, referred Mrs. Tucker to Richard Lawler, and he talked to her and he explained in detail that there's a great deal of risk. This operation had never been done in the world before. Uh, She and her husband, Howard, signed off on the, signed a waiver indicating that they were willing to accept the risks. I mean, she really didn't have much choice because three of her uh, immediate family members had died of um, polycystic kidney disease in their 30s and 40s, about the very same age that she was. Uh, The donor chose to remain anonymous. The donor was a 49-year-old woman from Chicago, or at least the Chicago area. She was suffering from cirrhosis of the liver, which would seem odd, would seem maybe not the best candidate for a transplant. Well, she passed away uh, at the very same hospital, Little Company of Mary Hospital, her kidney was in pretty good shape. It, not the ideal donor. I, I think they were suspecting that the donor might come by way of the emergency room. It could have been a maybe a younger person who had died uh, a violent death, perhaps an automobile accident. But Mrs. Tucker had been admitted to Little Company of Mary about six weeks prior to the June 17th, 1950 operation. So she would sometimes stand by the window and watch the ambulances roll up off 95th Street. And uh, she would say to her confidant, uh, Sister Joseph Casey, who was assigned by the hospital to, to help her through this ordeal, she would say, I don't wish ill will upon anyone, but uh, you know, perhaps there might be a kidney coming uh, from uh, a patient uh, being pulled up in the ambulance. So, yeah, so that was the, um, the surgery that took place uh, in 1950.
0: Wow. What do you think made her a good candidate for this operation? Was that was it that she and her husband were the first to agree to it, or was there something about her case that, that made it ideal for this operation?
1: I think she was desperate. I think that she saw the handwriting on the wall. Uh, she had seen three of her immediate family members uh, die from kidney disease, and she figured that this might be her last, last best chance. And, and, and I did meet Sister Joseph Casey, who is alive today. She uh, lives in a senior living center out on the southwest side of Chicago. And I had the pleasure of interviewing her three years ago when I was doing the book. And uh, she described Mrs. Tucker as a, as a very courageous woman, very strong-willed, perhaps like uh, Richard Waller. So uh, maybe these two deserved each other. Uh, but she wanted to do it for her family. She wanted. Uh, she had a son who I think was in his early twenties. She wanted to see him grow up. She had a lot to live for. She had a lot of good friends and relatives, and uh, just thought that probably forty-four years old was was too soon to die.
0: Yeah, it's quite brave, quite brave of her to sign on to this, and quite brave of Dr. Lawler to say, "Let's give this a shot." I think I. We can do this. And they were successful.
1: They were. The transplant, all of the mechanics were surgically done correct. All the vessels were uh, were anastomosed, the, the connection between uh, veins and the the arteries. Uh, the patient, uh, Mrs. Tucker, was released from the hospital 29 days after the surgery. She walked out of the hospital. She was walking not long after the surgery. Uh, the actual operation. So she was in good health as she left the hospital. Uh, this would have been mid-July. She was waving to the press, and she was uh, seemed to be in very good spirits. She went home, and uh, she was back in the hospital about a month later because there was uh, some diminution in terms of her urine output, which is you know obviously a key a key indicator. Uh, they went back in and uh, reopened the wound and um, looked at the kidney and uh, there was some infection. So they um, washed away the pus on this stricture where the operation took place, but they determined that the kidney was still alive and well, and it was uh, producing urine. So several days after that, she and her husband um, hopped in the car and took a 300 mile trip down to Jasper, Indiana, uh, Southwestern Indiana, where her sister-in-law, who was a former army nurse, and they had been corresponding during her convalescence. Uh, they went to an American Legion Hall dance that night and she danced with her husband and she was kind of the bell of the ball that night. Uh, she was, uh, you know, celebrated. And uh, uh, and she made this trip down to Jasper several times in the next few years while her health was still good.
0: That's wonderful. That's I, I'm sure that must have been so thrilling Not only for the Tucker family, but for all of the uh, Sister Casey and for Dr. Lawler, for everyone involved in her care to see this woman on the sort of on the brink of certain death, given her family history, now dancing with her husband and celebrating and living life to the fullest. That must have been so exciting.
1: She was a a living miracle at that point. Yeah.
0: Was everyone excited about this, or were there critics at the time?
1: There were critics. There were critics both in the medical field and in the religious community. Uh, We'll start with the medical field. Uh, Some of the doctors said this was too soon, that the surgery got ahead of the science, that we have not worked out immunosuppression. We have not worked out tissue-type matching. So they called it irresponsible. The American Urological Association, of which uh, Richard Lawler was a member, denounced the operation. Uh, They had a meeting in Chicago, just coincidentally, the following year, and they uh, ordered a, a moratorium on these type of operations until the science had become more advanced. Richard Lawler said that he felt that he'd been ostracized, that he in some cases, felt that he would contaminate people, if especially doctors, if you were even to talk to them. So he felt that he was kind of uh, marginalized by taking this risk. And I suppose that's the risk that any pioneer faces. It could be in the medical field, in the aeronautical field. You know, if you get out ahead of things, if you uh, get too far ahead of the path, uh, you run some risk of, uh, of rejection in your own right. One of the ironies of this is this Operation took place at a Catholic hospital, Little Company of Mary. that's a, a British-based order of nuns. The head of the hospital was a nun herself. She approved the surgery. There were a couple other hospitals where uh, doctors Lawler and West worked. Uh, this would be Loyola, which is another Catholic hospital, and Cook County Hospital, where they were uh, attending surgeons did not like the idea they uh, they said no no you're not going to do it here there's uh, too much of a risk involved but the uh, some of the catholic clergy it wasn't the vatican i don't even think it was the uh, the cardinal in chicago but it was some of the local clergy had misgivings about it they thought that the surgeons were playing god or that they were desecrating a human body when they removed the organ from the deceased donor so there was a lot of criticism, despite the fact that it was done at a Catholic hospital. Um, all three of the surgeons were practicing Catholics themselves. So uh, they were kind of uh, catching hell from uh, all different corners as a result of this.
0: Yeah. So do you think that reception or that criticism is perhaps why Dr. Lawler only performed this one transplant surgery? Because he did not go on to perform others in the future is that correct
1: that's correct he did not do another one nor did his colleagues he said for us to do another kidney transplant would be like uh, waving a red flag in front of a bull they had become uh, kind of the the eye of the storm so they they kind of backed off in fact what what richard lawler said was we just wanted to, to get it out there we just you know wanted to be the first ones to do this and what it did is it sparked a series of operations in some of the leading medical centers in Paris. Uh, there was a uh, renowned surgeon named René who after reading their description of the surgery several months later in the Journal of the American Medical Association... Uh, Dr. Coos in Paris said, "This this is the spark. This is this is the moment that we needed to go ahead." They 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 saw that it could be surgically. The technical aspects were done by Richard Lawler and his colleagues. So, in Paris, in beginning in January of 1951, Dr. Coose and there was a another renowned surgeon, uh, John Hamburger, at, at another Paris hospital. They began a series of Kidney transplants over the next several years. None of them were terribly successful. Uh, The patients typically didn't live more than a a week or two, in some cases, a couple of months, because of the the organ rejection syndrome. Boston, uh, Dr. Joseph Murray, who is the one generally credited with having the the first kidney operation, he'd begun a series of kidney transplants. uh, Much like in Paris, the patients all died within a Week or two, or occasionally they might make a month or two before the the organ rejection syndrome kicked in. But it was, it, I, I think, it was an important moment. It, it it perhaps wasn't the big bang, but I think it was certainly an inflection moment for kidney transplantation.
0: So speaking of Dr. Murray, why do you think his transplant he performed on the Herrick twins in 1954 is? widely regarded as the first successful transplant when Ruth Tucker had already received a kidney and lived for five years after her transplant.
1: Yeah, I think that's maybe unfair to Richard Lawler that he did perform this this operation. The patient, I should point out, her wound was reopened after about 10 months, and they discovered that uh, the body had rejected it. Uh, they left the organ in its place, figuring they didn't want to cause any further trauma. So she lived essentially on her one remaining kidney. The, 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 the suspicion is that that transplant provided almost sort of a, a, a dialysis, that it was sort of a bridge that allowed her remaining kidney, which was also badly diseased, but not quite as, as, as badly diseased as the left kidney, the one that was um, most afflicted. So it was a transplant. Mm-hmm. It, it, it didn't last for eight years, which was the case with the Herrick twins, but the twins were identical. So they were genetically identical. So there was no immunosuppression. There was uh, no immunological barriers to worry about. So perhaps you put an asterisk by that, uh, by that operation. You really didn't have Non-identical or or non or genetically dissimilar patients until the, the 1960s. But getting back to Dr. Murray, I, I think he richly deserves the Nobel Prize that he was awarded in 1990. He stayed with this for at least 10 or 15 years. He did return to plastic surgery, uh, which was his original specialty. He did return to that later in his career, but he had continued to do a lot of experiments. And as I say, stayed with this for the next 10 or 15 years, as opposed to uh, Richard Lawler, who was one and done. I think another reason that uh, Richard Lawler's surgery is overlooked is the fact that it took place at a community hospital in suburban Chicago versus 1954. Dr. Murray's operation took place at the Brigham, which is a Harvard affiliated hospital. He was a Member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School, so it seemed like a more logical place for something, this breakthrough to actually take place. Yeah. Um, so I, I think when the world first heard about this, they just seemed uh, it just seemed a bit improbable. There, there was a burst of uh, of attention and publicity, but it sort of faded away, and it, it did get lost to history. And that was sort of my inspiration to, to kind of uh, resurface this, because I think it's it's a fascinating story because of all the various threads, all the uh, the threads of how the, the clergy reacted to it, how the medical community reacted to it, uh, how the press reacted to it. So that leads me
0: perfectly into my next question. Why was it so important to you to tell this story? Obviously, you have a, a family connection with Dr. Lawler, but it seemed in reading the book that it was much deeper than that for you.
1: Yeah, I grew up knowing about Uncle Richard's surgery. My uh, my father was a head of a hospital. My grandfather was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. My sister's a nurse. So I was surrounded by needles and medicine. I had no uh, inclination to go into it myself, but but it was kind of family lore. And um, I, I think kind of a key moment for me was when Dr. Murray died in 2012, a colleague of mine at Topol University, Marched the obit down to my office and said, "I remember, uh, Ed. I remember you telling me that your great uncle performed the the first kidney transplant." And I'm reading this obituary. It was from, I think, the Associated Press. And he said, "I'm reading this obituary about uh, Dr. Murray in Boston, and there's uh, not a single mention of your your great uncle." And I, I read it and I said, "Yeah, that I, I think that was a bit of an injustice." Uh, so. Uh, this was 2012. It was probably five or six years later when I finally uh, figured I had the time to look into this. So in about 2018, I started doing the research. I, I talked with um, my uncle, who knew Dr. Richard quite well, and uh, he described kind of the blowback that he experienced, which I was unaware of that part. And I, you know, being a, a journalist and a journalism teacher, I thought, wow, that, that's kind of an interesting angle maybe we like, you know, these kind of aberrational stories. So so that got me going. And I went over to the hospital and um, asked for their archives, which was quite voluminous. So it took me a long time to get through it all. And then I was able to talk to uh, Sister Casey. And there was a, another woman who was involved actually in the surgical suite the day of the operation in 1950. Um, Nora O'Malley, who was a nun novitiate at the time, she was in the order for a number of years and then had to leave because of a family emergency, but she was able to describe the drama in the surgical suite that day. So I, I was fortunate to be able to talk to two essentially eyewitnesses from a surgery that was 70 years before. And then, um, I, I continued digging and talking to a number of, uh, talked to a handful of, uh, current day transplant surgeons and they were all familiar with it dr john fung uh, here at the university of chicago is quite familiar with it he talks about it in some of his presentations and he said it was a it was a significant moment and i think he would agree that it was uh, overlooked uh, which is kind of my uh, you know kind of my impetus is, is to maybe try to reverse this injustice the fact that this rather significant event was truly lost to history
0: yeah, that's wonderful to have that. You're sort of bringing it back to light and because it's so important to look back on those things and learn from them. And something I found fascinating and that you alluded to earlier is early surgeons were attempting to transplant organs from animals. And now we're seeing in the news genetically modified pig kidneys being tested for transplants. Was there anything else in your research, uh, any other early techniques you think researchers will revisit, like the animal transplants?
1: I think just the the surgical technique that uh, Richard Lawler and his team used in 1950, it's pretty much what's used today. So that hasn't changed a whole lot. Yeah, and it's fascinating what's taking place with these uh, genetically Altered organs from animals. I I think that could be the answer for this terrible shortage of available kidneys for transplant. I I think the National Kidney Foundation indicates that there are as many as 100,000 people waiting for a kidney operation and uh, a kidney transplant, I should say. And of course, if they don't have it within a certain number of years, they're likely going to die because uh, you can't live forever on dialysis.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. That's There's a huge shortage and and this could be one of the keys to unlock getting all of those people waiting on organ. I'm fascinated by it and very interested to see what happens in the coming years as they continue that research. What was something completely surprising you learned
1: during your research? I knew very little about immunology and I still don't know enough about it. I mean, it's a very complex, very sophisticated field, but I, I didn't quite understand the notion of organ rejection. So I had to read up quite a bit about that. And I think what I realized is transplant, the, the, the surgical technique is, is only half the battle. Transplant surgeons need to be, in essence, immunologists themselves. In fact, I mentioned Dr. John Fung, who's both—he's both an immunologist and a transplant surgeon. So that might be, you know, the perfect combination. Of course, not every transplant surgeon is an immunologist, but they have to have fairly deep knowledge of the immunological piece for their patient to survive. There are other obviously other physicians on staff that can perform a lot of the immunological research for them but uh, i think that was the uh, the thing that surprised me is uh, th- how important immunology is to transplantation
0: absolutely yeah it sounds like that was sort of the first step in making transplants successful was that like looking at who's going to be compatible but, and that's maybe why those early early attempts weren't successful because they weren't They didn't have that understanding yet of how the immune system plays just as big a role as the surgeons in the organs taking and working and all of that beyond the surgery portion of a transplant.
1: And it really wasn't until the 1980s when they developed cyclosporine. I think it was approved by the FDA in 1983, and that made... Transplantation much more viable prior to cyclosporine. They were using a variety of everything from radiation to to steroids to try to overcome the the rejection syndrome, and the patients didn't live very healthy lives. I, I think the uh, you know the blowback from immunosuppression was 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 pretty difficult. I mean I mean there's still complications and still situations that patients have to deal with today but survivability and sustainability is much higher today than it was back in the kind of the, the prehistoric era of the 50s and 60s.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So we've obviously seen a lot of developments in the transplantation world since this first surgery in 1950. What other developments do you think we'll see in the coming years?
1: There's another, you know, in addition to the possibility of of, of animal transplants, there's a a team out at uh, University of California, San Francisco, that are developing what's called a bioartificial kidney that would not require any sort of animal uh, organs. It would be an organ that would be implanted that would uh, not have any... Possibility of a rejection, it would uh, use the body's own blood pressure system as a pump, so it would be a, a very comfortable, very viable type of alternative to a you know the actual organ. It sounds like this is a number of years off; it could be a decade away. But I, I think there is uh, some hope on the horizon to eliminate this this awful waiting list. I, I think that's the cruel irony of it all. We now have the uh, The technology to transplant organs, but we just don't have enough organs. We, uh, you know, you can either have a live donor or a deceased donor. Live donors are fairly rare, unfortunately, and you can certainly understand why somebody would want to give up a kidney. But I think in um, 2021, according to the National Kidney Foundation, there were about 24,000. Organ transplants, only about 6,000 came from live donors. The balance would come from deceased donors. Another problem is is while everybody agrees that uh, organ donation is a wonderful thing, only about half of the people... Indicate on their driver's license that uh, they would like to be an organ donor. I, I still think there's some myths surrounding this. Uh, that, you know, maybe the the body shouldn't be desecrated, or it violates my religion, or uh, I'm going to be char or my I'm going to be charged because my loved one's organs were removed. I, I think all of it is it's nothing more than a myth. Uh, so I think that. Um, the kidney industry somehow needs to overcome this and and get this percent much higher than fifty percent. You know, why shouldn't it be ninety percent? If ninety percent of the uh, the public agrees that this is a good thing, then perhaps they should put their money where their mouth is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And even fewer who sign up to be organ donors end up dying in a way where their organs can be transplanted. So it, you've got that factor on top of it. So that lowers the numbers of available organs as well. It's a, there's so many factors that go into it. So s- some of these technologies that are being developed could be absolutely huge for um, eliminating how many people are dying every year, waiting for an organ, or even just the need to be on dialysis for so long. All of these factors that are hard on a, a person's body who needs an organ. It's, it's really interesting. And speaking of people waiting, your book uh, highlights the stories of modern-day transplant patients and transplant surgeons. You talked about Dr. Fung. Why was it important to you to add their voices to the book?
1: I think, Sarah Jane, it just boils down to my own natural curiosity. I, you know, I was writing about all that was going on in the nineteen fifties, and I thought, well, what is going on today? <laughs> so I began calling some of the uh, the leading medical centers, transplant centers, and uh, asked to spend some time with them. Uh, this was right during the height of the pandemic. So uh, it was a little t- difficult to do face-to-face. I did go down to Indianapolis to IU Health and talk to Dr. Goggins, who's probably the transplant surgeon who's done more than any surgeon uh, in the United States. Uh, he's And he's only mid fifties, but he's been doing this, you know, since he finished his fellowship at Harvard. But it was fascinating to talk to him. He was familiar with uh, Richard Lawler's surgery, and he thinks that it, you know, it did move things forward. So I wanted to talk to um, some of the other transplant surgeons in other parts of the country, just to sort of get a, a sense for the the state of the art. And I think they are very optimistic that this organ shortage is going to be overcome in the next few years, or at least uh, the next. Decade or so, and I, of course, I wanted to talk to patients as well. I talked to um, a patient here in Chicago, Christine Bertrand, or as the French would say, Bertrand. She's from um, she's from southern France, and uh, she had a very difficult uh, situation. She had breast cancer, so that was uh, delaying the possibility of her organ transplant. But I, I visited with her uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she had a successful organ, ki- excuse me, kidney transplant at Rush hospital in October. And, um, uh, I saw her a few weeks ago and she's, she's in, uh, in wonderful health. So it's, uh, it's encouraging to see these kind of, kind of stories and talk to the patients. There was a Catholic priest down in Indianapolis who was, uh, involved in the, uh, a transplant surgery that Dr. Goggins performed. And, uh, he was a parish priest in Indianapolis and, uh, He knew that one of his parishioners was in dire need for a kidney transplant, and he kind of quietly put the word out, not from the pulpit, but uh, just talking to individual parishioners and encouraging them to go over to IU Health and possibly see if they would uh, be a suitable donor. He went over himself and uh, just said, you know, the the, the odds are kind of long. His the the woman he donated to was Latino. Uh, she was younger, different body size, but it turns out uh, that he was the donor, and uh, she is uh, doing very well today. He uh, described uh, his situation. It was relatively painless. He uh, took. Uh, I think a week, week and a half to recover. And he was back on the altar after that. So um, certainly uh, a lot of inspirational stories that are associated with kidney transplantation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book is a fascinating read. I am not a medically trained person whatsoever, and I was able to understand it. So it's beautifully written. And it's a just incredible look at the history of kidney transplantation and surgery and the need for organs. It's just, I can't say enough good things about it. So thank you so much for joining us. And where can our listeners pick up a copy of The Graft if they'd like to read it as well?
1: Probably the easiest way to get it is just go to Amazon. And it's uh, some of the Barnes and Noble bookstores in the Chicago area are carrying it. Uh, You may have to ask for it, but they uh, they can get it on the shelf fairly quickly for you
0: great well thank you so much for joining us and i really appreciate it this is it's been a really interesting conversation and i'm just like so impressed that here in chicago we have this humongous piece of history and i hope more people will spread the word and learn about it and we'll get dr lawler back to a household name Thanks to our guest, Edmund Lawler, for sharing the incredible story behind the graft with us. If you'd like to learn more about organ or tissue donation, visit the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois website at nkfi.org. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, and this is The Journey Continues. Prevention is a key part of our mission at NKFI. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health or nutrition tip.
2: Here's today's nutrition tip about vitamin D. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning it's stored in fat in the body. You may have heard vitamin D called the sunshine vitamin because we can get it from exposure to the sun, but we can also get vitamin D from the foods that we eat. The best sources of vitamin D are fatty fish like salmon and tuna, and foods fortified with vitamin D like milk. Vitamin D is also present in small amounts in beef liver, cheese, egg yolks, and mushrooms. Vitamin D plays many roles in the body, including promoting calcium absorption in the gut and maintaining enough blood, calcium, and phosphate concentrations to allow for normal bone development. Without enough vitamin D, bones may become thin, brittle, and misshaped. Calcium plus vitamin D helps to protect protect older adults from osteoporosis, which is a disease that causes bones to become weak and brittle, making them easy to break. Many people are at risk for vitamin D deficiency, including people living with chronic kidney disease. This is because your kidneys play an important role in how your body activates vitamin D from sun exposure and the foods we eat. If your kidneys are not healthy, then you may have low levels of vitamin D in your blood. It's important to have your vitamin D levels checked by your healthcare provider and be treated if they are low. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois.
0: The Journey Continues is brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and sponsored by Donate Life Illinois. To learn more about kidney disease and living donation, visit www.nkfi.org. To register to become an eye, tissue, and organ donor, visit lifegoeson.com. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to and leave a review for The Journey Continues in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.